Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Boys, how would you like to meet the creator of Batman? And our jaws dropped. I go, yeah. He says, fellas, and he points. He says, meet Bill Finger. And it was like, oh my God. Who? Because every Batman comic I ever read had a little square that said Bob Kane on it. And now we got the inside story straight from the horse's mouth about who really created Batman and how it really happened. Oh my God. I, you know, I, I get chills again. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard, a new week, a new show. Very excited for my guest, Michael Uslan. You're going to love this guy. If you've been listening to the show, welcome back. If you're a newbie, good to have you. Thanks for coming and thanks for subscribing and telling your friends. And I know you're going to like the show a lot. And before I get started, I just want to thank you guys so much. You have no idea how great you've been and how much I appreciate all of you. And I'm going to say it every episode until, as my mother would say, I am blue in the face. Very grateful. Thank you so much. If you need to reach me, you can do so at barrycats.com or at barrycats at Twitter or Instagram. And if you like to see live podcast shows of Industry Standard, we're going to be at the Boston Comedy Festival the first Sunday in September. And you're going to enjoy that a lot. I've got a very special guest there. And we're going to be in Montreal on July 27th, a Friday at 1.30 p.m. at the Hyatt Regency. Another great show, great special guest. And thank you to both of those festivals for bringing Industry Standard in. All right, without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest, and we're going to have a great, great time with Michael Uslan. All right, Michael E. Uslan was born December 15, 1950 in Cedar Grove, New Jersey. 
especially known for having a producing credit on every Batman film ever made since 1989, either animated or live action, because he acquired the rights in the 70s when he was only in his 20s. He got his first movie launched at age 28 by asking Warner Publishing for the rights, at no charge, to an old DC comic book, Swamp Thing, from 1982. Michael is a noted authority on comic book history and an instructor of the first ever accredited college course on comic books at Indiana University. In addition to the near 40 Batman movies he's produced since 1989, He's additionally produced Constantine, Spirit, and the blockbuster hit National Treasure. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor. Get ready to be inspired. Please welcome Michael Uslan. Thanks for that uh, wonderful introduction. Uh, I felt like I was lying in my coffin with my hands crossed. Uh, it was very, very nice to hear. Now you're wearing a ring that looks like you've won one of the Super Bowls. Yeah, this is a, a very interesting ring. This was my grandfather's ring. God, I, either that or you produced the movie Caligula. I'm not sure what it was. Well, actually, this movie was the inspiration for me to start a project that ultimately, over a period of years, turned into the first national treasure. And um, this ring is 101 years old. When my grandfather came over from russia uh with his brothers following suit they were all stonemasons and they wound up in bayonne new jersey would you mind telling our audience what a stonemason is uh yeah a uh, a mason who lays brick and builds houses out of brick and stone and mortar and concrete um when my my dad was a stonemason my grandfather was a stonemason all of my uncles were this is a scene out of my cousin Vinny. <laughs> yeah, my father was a mechanic. My grandfather was a mechanic. Um, but an entire, entire family of Masons coming over from Russia. And when they got to Bayonne, there was the Masonic Lodge. And they wanted to join that lodge. Why and, did they decide out of all the places in the United States to settle from Russia? It's Bayonne, New Jersey. Because it was the closest stop on the train leaving Ellis Island, Jersey City, it was Bayonne. So that was like stop number one. And my grandfather came over. I think he had $4 with him. So it wasn't like he had enough money to take him to Philadelphia. Um, so Bayonne became the nearest stop. And uh, at that time, most of the stonemasons in Bayonne were Italian. And at this era, late 1904, 1905, there was very strong anti-Semitism in the area. And because my grandfather and his brothers were Jewish, they would not let them join the Masonic Lodge. So ultimately, my grandfather petitioned the national or international organization, the Masons, and they awarded him and his brothers their own, whatever they call it, franchise or lodge. And they started one out of the Bayonne Hebrew Benevolent Association, and it was called the Menorah Lodge. And he became its first president in 1917. And this is his ring that I wear today. When my grandfather died, my dad took off his Mason's ring and wore this. And then when my dad died, he left this to me. That's an incredible story. So you said that ring inspired you to 
get involved with the movie National Treasure. So how did that come about? Yeah, we started it. I wanted to do a story dealing with a lot of the myths and legends of the Masonic Lodge. And uh, it really had an impact in early America. Virtually all of the early American patriots were uh, Masons. And we had developed a movie based on a book and um, we're working with a very, very well-known screenwriter. And then one day he came to us. Who was the very well-known screenwriter? Jonathan Hensley. And Jonathan, at some point in time, we were doing this with DreamWorks. And then at some point in time, Jonathan was approached by John Turtletaub, the director, who was working on a similar project for Disney. And their project was missing a number of elements. Our project was missing an element. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the two projects were combined into one, and that ultimately became National Treasure. How is it possible that a regular guy with roots in Bayonne, New Jersey, was able to somehow get the rights to the feature film world of Batman? As Virtually as a kid. I was in my 20s when I acquired the rights to Batman. Um, I, I think we really need to go way back in time. Uh, because if you don't have the context of the time, it's going to be really, really difficult to even begin to imagine how a kid in his 20s winds up buying the rights to Batman. Um, the first thing you have to understand is I am one of the original total comic book geeks. Period. End of story. My mom said I learned to read from comic books before I was four years old. I have an older brother, Paul. He, Paul's four years older than me. And he was the first one who brought comic books into the house, exposed me to the world of comic books and superheroes, um, put me up on his shoulders so I could reach up to the stand at Irv's uh, luncheonette in Bayonne on Avenue A and buy my first comic book back in 1956. It was my life. My kids have never been interested in comic books. I never brought one home. But I'm sure in school there's been a comic book lying around where people either are inspired by it or they're not. The movies are more popular than ever. Yeah. But it feels to me like the comic books are less popular than ever. Is that my imagination? I don't know that it's correct to say less popular. But it is correct to say not selling anywhere like they used to. And I think there's really a difference um, in, and I can explain that as we go along. Um, I can sum up what you're saying, Barry, in terms of going to San Diego Comic-Con or many of the Comic-Cons, not only around the United States, but they're now all over the world and they're growing, 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 huge proportions. Virtually every country, virtually every small city or large town in America has a Comic-Con. And in almost every case, within two or three years, they're hitting 75, 100,000 people coming out. But if you go to some of these Comic-Cons, if you go to most of these Comic-Cons, they have become about pop culture. The movie industry, the television industry, the gaming industry has usurped many of these big Comic-Cons. You'd almost want to say they have stolen the soul of some of them in terms of comic books. The comic book artists are sometimes relegated off to the side in a back hall 
um, the dealers who deal in the comic books and in original art seem to be less and less because the clientele seems to be more and more the younger people interested in the movie stuff and the animation stuff and the gaming stuff and the TV stuff. So it's changed. It really has changed. And while comic books remain the source for our great stories, stories of heroes, you know, it's not unlike Moses and Beowulf and Ulysses. It's all still the same thing. It's stories being passed down about brave heroes fighting the demons and dragons of the day. Except today, they don't wear skins. They no longer wear full medieval armor. They are wearing spandex and capes and leather. And it's the same thing. We are living in a polarized world. We're living in a polarized country. We're living in a time when a lot of people are very dissatisfied and very frightened about what's happening and what the future holds. And whenever there's a situation like that, whether you call it depression, war, whatever it is, there's a need for heroes. There's a need for hope. And it's the superhero stories told through the comic books and then brought to the world stage in a way that transcends not only borders but cultures that brings these stories of hope and redemption to the people. And you can call these heroes cowboys and put cowboy hats on them. You can call them superheroes and put capes on them. You can call them science fiction heroes and put um, lasers in their hands. But it's all basically comes down to the same thing. And as a result, while comic books are certainly today the development ground for these great stories, the way they are today being carried to the world is through other media. And that's a shame. That's a shame. Um, don't get me started about today's comic books. I embrace them all. You're talking to somebody who, since he was a little, little kid, collected every... I love comic books. You can't call me a DC fan or a Marvel fan and personally, I don't understand fans that are just so rooted to one and hate the other and vice versa. I, I loved everything. I bought everything and collected everything. Classics Illustrated, Archie, um, some of the small cheap stuff, Casper the Friendly Ghost, Richie Rich, who uh, was Donald Trump in short pants, basically. Everything, everything. And um, it's a shame to me that there are factions that have developed over the years about that. But um, I think that people, younger people today, unfortunately, are reading less. When they do read, they have a shorter attention span. And I hate to generalize, but I work with a lot of universities and I speak at many, many places around the country and I hear things and I hear a lot of anecdotal tales as to what's going on. And, uh, and it's kind of scary. It's kind of scary to me when I open up a comic book today and find that there are only 20 words on a page and that the writers have abdicated control or at least co-ownership of graphic storytelling to the artist. Because to me, a comic book is exactly that. It's 50% comic, 50% book. It is an equal marriage between a writer and an artist working together creatively. 
And when the writer pulls back and lets the artist tell the story completely on an average of 20 words on a page, then if I'm spending four bucks or five bucks for a comic book and I'm only getting three minutes of entertainment value out of it or four minutes, um, I feel shorted. So yes, you can call me old school. You can call me old fashioned. Um, and maybe it's simply a generational thing, but it is one of the things that I think are a bit problematic today in comics. Well, the reason why I read comics when I was younger was because there were less words on a page in the book and it was more pictures and less writing. And that was more exciting to me than reading a book. And I feel kind of bad because I don't know exactly how to handle it. But like the other day, my son says I have to do a book report on To Kill a Mockingbird. And he had the book with him. I go to say goodnight to him and I hear somebody talking. I'm like, who's in my son's room? He's like, oh, I'm listening to To Kill a Mockingbird on tape. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about comic books, which is the good and the bad of how it gets to the next level, comic books have a huge disadvantage because they could never move into the audio world. It's not about the delivery system. God bless digital. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody had the balls to one day say, okay, we're going to stop these pamphlet comic books. We're not going to print them anymore. If you want the individual comic books, you got to get them digitally. Then if you want the story arc, which is normally four to six issues, then we'll give you a hardback or trade paperback collection. That's great. This is not about delivery system. This is simply about reading. It's the only literary product that I know of that can't move into the digital world. I'm talking about when you're driving in your car and you can drive for a two-hour trip and just listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for me, the comic books were when you were a kid sitting in the backseat of the car as your dad was driving two hours and reading your comic books. For me, it was always easy. For my brother, after 15 minutes, he'd throw up uh, in the backseat of the car. But um, it was that experience. It's a tactile experience of holding it in your hands and gazing at the four-color images. And I am a addicted collector. I collect things. I don't, I don't give away things. I don't give up things. I collect things. I always have. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, 
and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I wanna tell you about a great product called Boku Superfoods. I just got back from Ohio and met with the owners of the company and I was just incredibly blown away by it. They have the purest, most potent and delicious superfood blends on the planet. It's just in these incredible powders where you just add any liquid you want, water, make smoothies. It's just so good and so healthy. Certified organic, kosher, and vegan, Boku Superfood is changing the game for thousands of people all over the world. And I'm confident it will change your life. So much so that I worked out an unbelievable deal with the owners. You'll be able to get a full week's worth of Boku Superfood for free. All you got to do is pay minimal shipping and you can join the Boku Love Life loyalty team. Just go to tryboku.com and experience the difference of how it makes you look and feel. And you will understand why Boku is the number one family-owned superfood company in the world. Have you thought of doing an episode of Hoarders? Um, I could have done it, except my wife has been working on me now for 45 years to really kind of let go and um she's done a really really good job in bringing me along how much stuff have you let go of uh i have now donated over forty-five thousand comic books memorabilia um to indiana university's rare book library it's the lily library at indiana so that students scholars historians will be able to access my collection and use it going forward in the future these are old comic books every time somebody touches it it has a little bit of damage from people's fingers how do you keep them there and allow people to read them without damaging them do they have to wear a hazmat suit when they're doing well two things you have to understand the quality of this lily library they have a gutenberg bible they have um so many rare they have a gilbert uh stewart uh washington um, so they are at the top of the game in terms of museum quality, um, people that handle all of these documents and artifacts. So yes, when you go there and ultimately you want something old, you are wearing the gloves, uh, as you were doing it and you were looking at one item at a time. What kind of gloves do they give you? It's like the plastic gloves. It's like you're working in Subway. Um, actually it's more like, uh, I was working for years with the Thomas Edison, um, laboratory in West Orange, New Jersey. And they took me to the underground concrete bunker where they had about a million artifacts and records stored. And they brought out of the vault Edison's notebook for me to go through showing how he tried and tried and tried and tried and finally invented the electric light. And I had to put on the plastic rubbery gloves in order to turn the pages, uh, hold and turn the pages on this notebook. And man, it was worth everything in the world to be able to do that and see just how this all happened. It was an amazing experience. I didn't know you could go to the bunker. Is anybody allowed to go? No, 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 no. Very, very few people ever go there. And I got to tell you one story. So I'm down there meandering about with the rangers uh, who take you through. And over in the corner, I see an oil painting. It's not huge. It really is not huge. It's about the size of a modest tv screen today 
and it's the original oil painting of Nipper the dog with his ear cocked, listening to the gramophone with his master's voice underneath. It is the original oil painting that originally the Victor Corporation used for its insignia. Ultimately, it became the insignia of RCA. And as I'm looking at the original oil painting, the dog with his confused head cocked, listening to the gramophone, they're sitting on top of a coffin. That was why the dog was so puzzled hearing his master's voice. And then the rangers explained to me that around the early 1900s, tastes had been changing and they felt it was no longer a good taste to show the coffin, so they just blacked out the background. I, As a lover of history, I've never read anything or seen anything about that. I mean, these are the things that uh, you know excite me these days. Why don't we go way, way back Okay, and take me back to... <laughs> Where you grew up in Bayonne, the socioeconomic dynamic there, was your family still Masons, your brothers, sisters, and what was your first inspiration in getting into this business and comic books? All right. When, uh, when I was three, we moved down the shore. And if you're from New Jersey, you know the expression down the shore. We uh, moved just outside of Asbury Park, New Jersey. And... Um, which is most famous these days for Bruce Springsteen, um, who I used to see play on Friday nights at a little hippie joint on Cookman Avenue in Asbury Park called the Upstage Club. Um, How big was the room? Uh, well, you went up long stairs, and the what, whatever size the room was, you always felt like if you fainted, you wouldn't be able to fall down. It was so jam-packed. And um, everybody had to have a good fake ID to get in there. When you first saw Bruce Springsteen in that little room, did you say to yourself, this is somebody who's going to be a big star, or you just thought to yourself, this is a great local performer? A, a, a great local performer. I think they had two house bands that would play like on Friday nights, two on Saturday nights. I think the name of his group was Steel Mill, um, if memory serves me. Now, there was no way you could tell. Um, I kind of just remember them playing a lot of Beatles songs. Um, no way to tell, no way to tell. Um, but yeah, you know, Asbury Park is a really interesting place. Uh, when I was growing up there, not only did we have convention hall where all the top rock and roll acts of the day, Beatles aside, showed up and played in our 4,000 seat convention hall, starting in 1964, the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds. Um, I went to see Joe Cocker. Led Zeppelin was his opening act. The first album had just gone on sale. Janis Joplin, I stayed for both shows. Greatest concert I ever saw in my life. The Doors, second row aisle seat. I was there with my French teacher who looked exactly like Linda Carter. Oh my God, that's a night. And I actually have a chapter on that in my book. Um, I mean, Jim Morrison was my God at that moment in time. We also had Collingwood Auction 12 miles away. It was a flea market and every friday night i would beg my parents to take me and my friend bobby and we would go to collingwood auction and there were two backdate magazine newsstands at this place among all of the pungent smells of cheese and salamis hanging around i'm sorry to be naive what's a backdate newsstand oh those used to be very very prominent when i was growing up they had them all over 9th and 10th avenues 8th avenue in new york You'd go in there and you would be able to get Popular Science or Life Magazine or Look Magazine dating back to the 
40s, 30s, 20s, um, all is- old issues of all kinds of magazines, magazines that were no longer published. And back then, since nobody had any idea that comic books had any value, that's where you found comic books dating back to the 30s and 40s. So at this backdate magazine stand, which was separated by the por- from the porn by two cardboard doors that looked like a saloon, um, we at age 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, we would go there on Friday nights and this guy would come in from New York with boxes. And he had a big card table and he would pour the boxes out on the card table and it was overloaded, falling off the table, old comic books. Since they were so old, he realized they had no value. They were selling for 10 cents at the time. So he sold them for five cents. And that's where I amassed my collection. That's where I filled in all the blanks going back to the 30s and 40s and 50s. And man, you know, it's it's stuff kids would dream of today. I mean, finding Superman number two, Archie number one, Mad number one, Captain Marvel number one, um, the list goes on and on. Um, the Marvel comics from the 40s and 50s that were there, it was, you know, it was like a little kid finding a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. So Captain Marvel Jr. volume number one. For our audience, for something like that in the 30s or whenever it was, how many comic books were printed total of that volume number one, approximately, if you had to guess? Back in the 1940s? Yes. I'll guess half a million. How are they valuable if there's 500,000 of them? Because there was this thing during World War II called paper drives where they would collect scrap paper. They would come around every week and kids went around with their wagons and got magazines, newspapers, comic books and took them to the scrap drive to help win World War II. Then two other things happened that made comics so rare. Number two, moms. Moms are the basic reason that comic books are so valuable today because like a unified army, when kids went off to college, moms went through the rooms, the basements. Oh, look at all of these junky comic books that he had here. And they either threw them out or gave them away. So moms really have made comic books valuable. Third thing, in the mid-1950s, there was a psychiatrist, Dr. Frederick Wortham, who had uh, his Lafargue Clinic in Brooklyn, New York. And he wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent, whereby he proclaimed that the post-World War II rise in juvenile delinquency in America, which had every parent, teacher, clergyman, and administrator so concerned, was as a direct result of comic books. That comic books were turning America's youth into juvenile delinquents. And he wrote this book and made these insane claims, including that if you read Batman comics, you would become a homosexual because Batman and Robin clearly were. If you read Wonder Woman comics, a woman, a girl could be a lesbian because Wonder Woman clearly was. That if you, uh, that kids did not read the human torch, they thought they were reading human torture. And that, uh, and he went on and on. He said, comic books cause asthma because children were staying indoors to read them instead of playing in the fresh air. As a result of his inciting tea parties and uh, PTA meetings and garden clubs and articles being published in newspapers and magazines and his book, there were comic book burnings in the mid-50s. 
Jersey City, St. Louis, all over the place. And it was very reminiscent of Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And I have pictures of it, stills of a lot of these, where you see all of these old rare comic books all going up in flames and the kids being rewarded for turning in their comic books uh, in an attempt to become normal, law-abiding, ethical young men and women. Is there any popular comic book starting when they first came out until now where there's a volume that doesn't exist you can't find it anywhere there's not one they've all disappeared they're extinct no not to my knowledge what is the most valuable comic book at this time that somebody would say this comic book that this person owns is the most valuable volume and what is it i'll say number one two and three it's action comics number one which 80 years ago this month um went on sale actually in april uh dated june 1938 it introduced superman to the world 10 cent comic book he was our first superhero that sold recently for about three and a half million dollars detective comics number 27 may 1939 introduced batman that's right on its heels, and that, I believe, sold over $3 million. And I think the third most valuable comic, uh, and I'm willing to accept uh, challenges on this, is Marvel Comics number 1. From uh, And there were two printings, one in October, one in November of 1939, that introduced the world to the Human Torch and Submariner and began Timely Comics, which ultimately became Marvel Comics. So they're pouring out the things on the tables, and that's how you started your collection? Yeah. We started to go to Collingwood in fifth grade. Who's so we? Me and my friend Bobby. Um, so our parents would take, my parents would take us on Friday nights starting at age 10. So 1961, uh, we would start going. The year Fantastic Four number one came out, and the Marvel age of comics began. Um, so this was a chance to fill in all the gaps before that. Meanwhile, as Fantastic Four number one came out, Hulk number one, Spider-Man number one, et cetera, et cetera, we were right there buying them off the newsstands at 10 cents a piece. And then around 1961, they went up to 12 cents a piece, which was my first lesson, harsh lesson in inflation. Uh, and it was devastating. You couldn't bargain? Um, to tell you the truth, I can remember like it was yesterday. You're a Jew. Come on, you bargain. <laughs> Wanamassa Pharmacy in New Jersey buying an issue of Lois Lane and Action Comics. And I had my 20 cents, and I went up to the pharmacist. Because back then, comics, you picked them up in either candy stores or drug stores. And I gave him 20 cents, and he looked at me, and he goes, no, they're tw that's 24 cents. I said, no, that's 20 cents. They're 10 cents each. He goes, no, they're 12 cents each. I said, no, they're not. He goes, son, look. And he turned the comic book around and showed me in the box that always said 10 cents that it now said 12 cents. So I stood there for about one minute staring at it, waiting for it to change back to 10 cents. And it didn't. And as a result, I didn't have enough money now for the two comic books. And I was forced, this was like Sophie's Choice, I was forced to put one back. And that was one of the most traumatic moments of my childhood. Um, but from then on, comic books were 12 cents and that was the beginning of the rise in price. Hey everybody, I know I've talked a lot on this show about AquaTrue, the countertop water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler purifier 
that's on your counter. It's only about maybe 10 to 12 inches high and maybe 10 to 12 inches wide in this triangle. It's this amazingly efficient piece of equipment that sits right on your counter. It has a nice pitcher, it has a press button where the water comes out and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just put your tap water in there and it purifies, it takes out all the bad chemicals, everything out and gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine that would cost you hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store where the plastic containers hurt the environment. It's just so much easier, so much better. And this product is amazing. I have one, everyone who comes over, everyone who uses it, they order one. And you should too, I'm telling you, it's incredible. And if you act now, you can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code Barry, that's B-A-R-R-Y, and you'll immediately get the huge discount and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. Industrystandardwater.com, promo code Barry, and you'll never, ever waste another dollar buying another bottle of water for your home again. Tell me a comic book as a kid, first time you saw the character and you read it and you tell your friend Bobby, I just read this comic book with this new superhero, this, this character blows. And it turned out to be a huge, huge success. I would say that First and foremost, that was Wonder Woman for me when I was a kid. And I read my first Wonder Woman comics. They sucked. Um, first of all, I felt they were for girls, not for guys. Number two was they were stupid silly. Wonder Woman was fighting the glop, which was a glop. Wonder Woman was fighting a giant egg with a Fu Manchu mustache called Egg Fu. Wonder Woman was marrying Mr. Monster in a Beauty and the Beast tale. Wait, I thought she was gay. Oh, please. It moved from one to the other to the other. Couldn't stand Wonder Woman comics when I was a kid. Um, so that was one of the, the, the big features. Over at Marvel, to tell you the truth, and I had this conversation with Stan Lee you know, years later, Ant-Man. I mean, really truthfully, and I think Stan might admit to this, Ant-Man sucked. Um, once Kirby stopped drawing it, the artwork really faltered and it was really just kind of lame. And then they introduced the wasp. Well, well, here's a conversation I had with Stan years ago. He said, you know, Michael, he goes, the one and only character I ever created, superhero I ever created that no matter what I did, I couldn't make a success of was Ant-Man. He said to me, started out, he was the man in the anthill. And we got lots of letters. There seemed to be a lot of interest. Didn't particularly sell very well, that issue, but a lot of interest. So I thought, okay, let's give him a superhero costume, and I'll make him a superhero called Ant-Man. So Ant-Man debuted and didn't sell well. So I said, all right, I'll give him a female partner, the Wasp. So now it was Ant-Man and the Wasp. 
didn't sell well. And he thought, well, maybe kids don't like shrinking. Maybe they'll like him growing. I turned him into Giant Man. Didn't sell. I tried the new Giant Man. It didn't sell. I changed his name and costume and made him Goliath. It didn't sell. And I thought, well, maybe I have the wrong insect. Maybe they like different insect. So I called him Yellow Jacket. Didn't sell. He goes, no matter what I did, I couldn't make that character sell. He goes, now Disney's going to be making a $100, $200 million movie on it. Maybe they'll figure out a way to make it work. And of course, ultimately, they did. I went into the Ant-Man movie determined to despise it. And it just won my heart. Because you weren't laughing at Ant-Man. You were laughing with him. And it was the first Marvel movie that really showed a genuine, wonderful sense of humor that captured a lot of what Stan and Jack and Stan and Steve Ditko were doing back in the 60s when they began and expanded the whole Marvel Age of Comics. So, um, and I think this is important, and I think a lot of guys can maybe relate to what I'm about to say. I was not an athletic kid. My, my older brother Paul was a superstar. He was the pitcher that every kid in Little League was afraid to face. Whether he had his hands on a football, a basketball, he was always just really, really great, and really, really athletic. And I had to live under that shadow, uh, especially being not an athletic kid. So uh, on the playground back then, I don't know if kids still do it, they would choose up sides for like a baseball game or something. And the captain of one side would make a pick and then the captain of the other side. And always I was one of the last three or four kids to be picked. And you go with the flow, but it does impact your psyche, your self-esteem. And then came Little League. Little League in New Jersey started when you were eight years old and you went, it was called Pee Wee League. And you went and played on a team and hopefully learned how to play the game. Um, and half the time you were playing right field and eating a popsicle. Um, so we had a coach who was, in retrospect, was probably a college kid. Um, and he was an asshole. And um, at the end of every game, and our parents would be in the stands, he would pull us, pull aside all the kids who struck out during the game, just out of the earshot of our parents and start screaming at us and tell us you look like clowns out there and blah, 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 and just really crapped all over us. And um, I went back one day crying and I wouldn't explain to my mom what happened. I think I was embarrassed about it. I said, I don't want to go back. I don't want to play anymore. And she said, you made a commitment to your team. Once you make a commitment, no matter what, you got to see it through. You don't have to go back next year if you don't want, but you've got to see it through. And finally, I was able to quit. And while my brother took the field and the spotlight and the other kids were playing in these different sporting events, I found my refuge by hanging out with superheroes. Screw them. You know, so they're all playing with each other. One guy can hit a ball or catch a ball better than the other. I'm hanging out with Superman and Batman and Flash and Fantastic Four and X-Men. And I had my world was a world of superheroes. And I completely was absorbed into that world. And I was Peter Parker. I was Clark Kent. I was Bruce Wayne. And they were all talking directly to me, especially as I got a little older, like hit seventh grade and had discovered girls. And back then, if you were 
uh, over the age of 12 and a girl found out you still collected or read comic books, you were what I would call date challenged. Um, it was difficult. It, it was difficult. But I found that the Marvel comics were talking to me, not like the old DC comics did as if I was 8 to 12, but Stan Lee was talking to me as if he respected me as a junior high school kid or as a high school kid or as a college kid. And I felt that the comic books were growing up with me and I was no longer leaving them behind with the discovery of girls and a driver's license and everything that was about to come. Uh, and that was really an amazing time, an amazing time. I was very lucky to ride that wave with the comic book industry. Tell us the first time you met a girl, you were hiding your comic books in your house along with your Playboy magazines, and the girl shared with you, I love comic books. There was no girl who liked comic books. Yes, they may have read romance comics. They may have read Richie Rich, Casper, Wendy the Good Little Witch. That's as far as it ever went, going far and wide to find a female like that. However, I did find a girl that accepted the fact that I was into comic books and had no issue with it whatsoever. She was my girlfriend in uh, around my junior, senior year of high school. And so we had an incident where, you know, in New Jersey, you had your house, there was the girl's house, there were your parents, there were the girl's parents. So when you wanted to make out, you went parking and you would find a secluded spot somewhere in the outskirts of town. And everyone kind of knew where the best spots were. So one night I was parking and all of a sudden I see a red light flashing on and off being reflected. And I go, oh my God, it's the cops. And so we quickly straightened ourselves in the car and it, it had to be a Wednesday because I had a bag full of comic books with me. And I said to her, here, pretend you're reading this. And I took the other one and pretended I read it. And there's a knock on my window. Um, all the windows were steamed up at the time. And we roll down the window and the cop says, what are you guys doing? I said, hi, officer. We're just sitting here reading comic books. And he got so pissed off at the fact that he couldn't catch us red-handed. He says, get out of here. And we escaped the wrath of the law that night. But that was a turning point for me. That's when I realized, oh, my God, I, there are girls out there who, aren't, who don't go running scared from a guy who's got comic books on his mind. When you're in the car with the girl and you're driving to the spot and you park the car and you stop it, as a young man back then or teenager, do you know that she knows what's happening? Yeah, it was a thing. You, uh, when you were driving, you could go to the drive-in movie, which they basically do not have any longer. But the drive-in movie was always considered a place. Then there was what we all used to call submarine watching. So that was the Netflix and chill, the drive-in movie. Yeah. yeah. So there was that. And um, we used to say we were going submarine watching. Watch the submarine races. That was one of the code words that uh, a lot of the kids used back then. And of course, now as an adult, I realize, you know, our parents weren't fools. Uh, we weren't as smart and crafty and cunning as we thought we were. Did your parents ever have the talk with you? Oh, my dad did. Sure. How old were you? Uh, 32. <laughs> <laughs> the 
first talk I remember, which took place in the car with me and my brother. And again, Paul was four years older, so I think it was really aimed at him. And I just got the uh, the backwash from the whole thing. Um, I was probably like eight, so Paul must have been around 12. You were eight and you got the talk. Yeah, and he was trying to explain to me, I think he used Perry Como or some singer as an example, that he had a young wife and uh, they had a baby. And I don't know if it was me or my brother that asked, well, how did they have a baby? And my father was trying to explain, he goes, well, when two people become very, very close, and they they love each other. They become very very close. That's when they have a baby. And as he started to explain it, I kind of set up in my head that if I sat too close to a girl for too long a period of time, she would have a baby. So certainly in around sixth grade or fifth grade, I was always very careful to keep my distance in my chair from if a girl was sitting next to me or watch you know watch the time. Um, because I certainly didn't want anything happening like that. But my dad straightened me out when I was 32. Now your sons are here. When do you have to talk with them? Um, probably his mother did first because she's a nurse and she thought she could explain. Oh, I remember what it was. My wife said, you're going into too much detail. You're talking too much. You got to be just simple and quick. And so she kind of took over from that. I think we were in the sink and there were soap bubbles. And I was trying to show how first there's one soap bubble, then it divides into two soap bubbles. And I just went kind of for the science of it. And um, mom straightened him out. I just want to take a minute to share another groundbreaking, environmentally sound product with you. It's an unbelievable, revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates and it will make your life so much better. It's like no other product you'll ever find in the world. And I'm talking about the Air Doctor. As you know, air inside our homes can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. And until now, the only thing that could get rid of all these things in your house that were damaging to you and your family were systems that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. That's why I wanted to talk to you about the Air Doctor and share it with you. It removes everything, dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and so many other contaminants that circulate through your home that cover your walls, floors, and furniture. You can get the Air Doctor right now. It's normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for you guys, for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300 off the Amazon price. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, B-A-R-R-Y, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry. I have one of these. I'm telling you, it works. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. It's truly incredible. It works for me and it'll work for you. Your grandparents were stonemasons. 
So obviously, there's no one in the entertainment business in the family. Well, uh, I had a great aunt who was a silent film star, whom I never met um, when my dad was little. Um, my dad and my aunt Hannah made a deal in Bayonne with the Bayonne Opera House, which had converted to showing silent movies, where uh, every week the company would not only send them the film, they would send them the musical score to be played on the piano to accompany the movie. And my aunt, as a little kid, would play the piano and my dad would sing the overture to the movies, the theme song. Um, and in the process of some of them did an old soft shoe. The old soft shoe is the tap dancing. Yeah, but it's not loud. The soft shoe is more of a shuffle than the actual tapping. Got it. Okay. You, kind of sh you kind of scuff the bottom of your shoe as you go rather than tap. But so at that time, the, the first notion I got that I wanted the entertainment industry in some way, shape, or form, I wrote and produced and directed our student variety show in high school when I was a senior. And um, we had packed audiences for two nights, and people were laughing hard on the uh, with the comedy and falling out of their chair laughing and we we were getting thunderous applause the talent that i was kind of managing the acts and putting them together uh at the end of it we got a standing ovation and they brought me out to the center stage and i thought that was the night i, I thought okay i could do this i have i have the ability to do this what kind of acts were on the variety show? Oh, it was, you know, kids that pulled together acts. Some were soloists. Some were, they would do a um, a song and dance from a Broadway show. Um, others would, um, would do a comedy bit. The biggest comedy hit at that time was Rowan and Martin's Laughing. Of course. So that was the style that a lot of people chose. So some people performed songs that were already existing. They were all already existing. But the sketches were original comedy pieces that they wrote parroting laugh-in? Correct. Interesting. Did you host? I, I wrote, mo I think I wrote most of them, if not all of them. And did you host? Yeah. And I acted in it and uh, got a bunch of my friends together for it. It was a turning point night. It was, a, it, was a, it was one of the amazing nights of my childhood. Did you get the door? Yeah, no. That went to the PTA. Um, but I did get my cousin in my senior year of uh, high school... My cousin from Bayonne, Mark Stein, was the lead singer and organist for a group called Vanilla Fudge. Of course, that was one of the first albums I ever had. That was amazing. That album was on the charts for over a year, and I got them to come to my high school and put on a concert to raise money for my senior class. That also was impactful in my life that night. My cousin played the organ in that, Mark Stein, um, whose father was Shifty Stein, and I believe if that I remember... That was his God-given name? Shifty? I think so. And I think there was another Stinky Stein somewhere along the line. Those might have been names that they made up for them as kids. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, the Uslin family, the Stein family are all connected in Bayonne. Virtually every Jew in Bayonne was connected to me, either directly or through marriage. I had, Growing up, I had thousands of cousins... Uh, legions of aunts and uncles, um, huge, huge family. When your grandfather came to Ellis Island, what was his last name? Ujlan. It was spelled in Russian. Here's what happened. In the 1850s, the Tsar passed an edict in Russia that all Jewish men had to take formal last names 
so for purposes of conscription, so they could draft them into the army. So the Jews had typically not had last names. It was always um, Yashashia ben Simon, meaning Joseph, son of Sam. Uh, Simon ben somebody else. No formal last name. And a lot of people at that time, his last names took their profession or took a landmark or took the town. In the case of uh, my family, they took the name of the little Jewish shtetl 35 miles south of Minsk that they all lived in called Ujlan, which today is now Ujlani. And um, so when he when they got there, that was it. So he says, Ujlan, U-S-L-A-N. And that's what the guy wrote down, and that became our last name. So let me back up a step that's very important. Fantastic Four number 15. The Fantastic Four fights the mad thinker and his awesome android. In the letter page, now back then, comic books had letter page. Again, context of the time. There were no computers. Tell our audience what a letter page is. There would be a page in the comic book that would reprint letters being sent in by fans and readers to the editor asking questions or commenting on the previous issue. And then, in the case of Marvel, Stan Lee would respond beneath it. So, um, in the letters page, one of the kids wrote in and said, I am publishing a fanzine which is a magazine by fans for other fans. And back then in those early days, Stan at Marvel and another editor at DC, Julie Schwartz, published full addresses of the kids who wrote in their letters. So through seeing these addresses, kids started to write to each other and began to amass, began to form an organization that strung everybody together. Again, there's no internet. There were no Comic-Cons. Collecting comic books was maybe the most isolated hobby in the world. Until fifth grade, I thought I was the only kid in the world so into comic books and superheroes. I didn't know there was one other person like me until I met Bobby when Bobby moved into our uh, uh, school system and wound up in my class in fifth grade and I found, oh my God, there's two of us. Your best friend. Now all of a sudden, we're finding there's other people from all over the country, kids who are really into it. This was the beginning of what we call organized comic book fandom and the first fanzines that went out. So I we sent in and we got a copy of this fanzine. It was called the Rockets Blast Comic Collector. And in there, they had articles about the history of comics. Did you know there was a golden age? Did you know that the comics you're reading now actually started in 1930s and 40s? Did you know there was an older version of Green Lantern and Flash before this one? Did you know that Marvel was originally timely comics? Oh my God, my world, my mind was were, was being opened. I couldn't wait. I, I waited at the mailbox every month for the new issue of this to come. And it was filled with ads from other kids and the very first two or three or four dealers who were dealing in old comic books who were willing to buy and sell and trade old comic books. So now I could fill in the gap. And I'll never forget my first, the first ad I responded to from Mark D. Nadell of Brooklyn, New York. I bought from his ad and I remember taking quarters and taping them to cardboard and putting it in an envelope to send him enough money. I bought Fantastic Four number one, Fantastic Four number two, Hulk number one, 
and I sent him $2.25 in quarters for the three comics. Back then, did you ever hear about kids sending their money off and they never got anything in return? Never, was, never once. So the honor system worked back then. Yes. For the same reason back then, um, we never locked our front door. Starting in about second grade, my mom let me walk to school by myself through the woods to cut through to the school. So um, this comic book fandom thing began. And then in 1964, Bobby and I get this, there's an ad and there's some articles that this high school kid, I think it was a high school singer named Bernie Bubness from Long Island and another guy, David Kaler, wanted to put on a comic book convention so that fans in the New York, New Jersey area could actually meet they said face-to-face. -face. It was probably more accurately pimple-to-pimple -pimple at that time. Um, and they put together this idea of having what they called a Comic-Con. C-O-M-I-C-O-N. And they got a hotel that was a flea bag in downtown New York. It was called the Broadway Central. The weekend of Lincoln's inauguration, it must have been gorgeous. <laughs> But in July 64, it was on the verge of collapsing on itself. It's like a Motel 5. It's like a Motel Minus 2. <laughs> so um, we convinced my mom and dad to take us. The Broadway Central, we get there, and there is a guy dead drunk, unconscious, in the lobby, lying on the floor. We had to step over him to get to the desk. <laughs> we get to the desk, and you can see roaches on the wall. And my mother looks around, and she goes, we are out of here. And Bobby and I panicked and we were like begging and she says, we are not staying here. I don't know why she got upset. The rooms were $3 and 75 cents per night, but she got upset. So I appealed to the Supreme court, which was my dad and my dad pulled her aside and talked her down. But why wouldn't she just say, we're not staying here. We're going to stay in another hotel, but you can come here if you want. Because A, my mom would never let me be in a place like that on my own. Got it. Uh, number two is, again, you have to understand, my family was not wealthy. We were blue collar. And staying overnight in New York City on a Friday and Saturday night so we could be at the convention Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and driving up and paint tolls and gas and parking. Um, you know, it wasn't like you could just say, okay, let's do it. Plans had to be made, budgets had to be made. So your dad talks to Talks her. her down and we check in and it was like, all right, can we go, can we go, can we go? He said, it's upstairs on the um, um, ballroom floor. So my mom says, all right, go, but don't touch anything. And as we walk past the desk, to the right, there's an opening, and it's the lobby bar, as seedy a lobby bar as you can imagine. The bartender, did you ever see Treasure Island? Yes. The bartender looked like Long John Silver minus the parrot. <laughs> and sitting at the bar, and this is like 9 o'clock, 9.30 in the morning, are two men, one of whom Bobby and I know. It's Otto Binder, who was our mentor. He was the man who brought us, brought the world of comic books alive to us. Um, Otto was a science fiction, famous science fiction writer. 
He wrote with his brother under the uh, nom de plume Iando Binder and created Adam Link Robot, among many other great creations. He then went into the world of comics in the early 40s and was the primary writer of Captain Marvel and the Marvel family. He also wrote Young Allies, Captain America, and many other things. When Captain Marvel was sued out of existence by Superman, Otto, in order to continue working, went over to Superman. And it was Otto Binder who co-created the Legion of Superheroes, Supergirl, Brainiac, Crypto, the Superdog, and the list just goes on and on and on. So how old are you right now? 13. And do you understand that this guy who's a genius is an alcoholic? Um, no. You don't understand why he's in the bar at 9 o'clock? No, anymore. and I never understood why his nose was so big and bloodshot and yeah i no, i had no clue and your mother let you go into the bar well we were already out of her sight at this point so we see him sitting there with another guy go otto he goes mike bobby come on in and we come in and we sit at the bar now, how did they know you oh because bobby and i had spent 10 hours at otto binder's house just a few weeks before interviewing him and for me falling in love with his daughter mary um and uh so he was like he told us all about the history of comics and uh, the prose and loaded us up as much as our hands could carry with comic books from the 40s that he had written. Uh, he gave us scripts that he wrote for Superboy and Lois Lane and Superman and autographed everything. He also wrote for NASA. Um, it was just great. Otto was, was, Otto was my in, and that's when I became a comic book historian. How did you get to him? Because the fanzine... Um, Alter Ego number seven was all about the Captain Marvel story and had pictures and letters and an interview with Otto Binder. And I saw his address that he lived in New Jersey and I lived in New Jersey. And I figured New Jersey's small. He's got to be real close. And it turned out he was um, an hour plus away. And I again, my parents who sacrificed absolutely everything for me, my brother, you got to remember... My dad was a stonemason. He worked, it didn't matter if it was snowing or 100 degrees, he was out there working. And he worked six days a week his entire life. And for him to give up a Sunday, to drive me to spend 10 hours with a comic book writer. Do you drive and you just knock on the door without him knowing you're coming? We wrote him a letter in advance. And he would write a letter back yes. saying, this is the day when you can come. Yes. And as a result of the people he put me in touch with, Starting in seventh grade, I was writing letters to all these famous comic book creators, and I was having weekly correspondence with them. I don't think any of them except for Otto knew I was in seventh grade. I think they all thought I was an adult. Handwritten letters to all of them. Yes. Uh -huh. I presume you had a phone in the house for them to call? or No, there, there was never a phone call. That was too expensive. So it was Long all distance. handwritten letters back and forth. Correct. So, and they would send me artwork and all kinds of stuff. This is how I learned firsthand, right straight from the horse's mouth, the whole history of comics, how the industry started and why, how DC started, how Marvel started, how Archie started, um, how these superheroes and supervillains were created. Um, all of my knowledge is firsthand, all of it. And I saved everything, everything. So... Um, we're now at the first Comic-Con and we come into the bar and we are sitting uh, to the left of Otto and this other guy and we're on a stool 
And uh, the bartender says, what would you like? I mean, I could have told him anything. We could have got it. And we ordered Cokes. And we start talking to Otto. And Otto turned to us and said, boys, how would you like to meet the creator of Batman? And our jaws dropped. I go, yeah. He says, fellas. And he points. He says, meet Bill Finger. And it was like, oh, my God. Who? Because every Batman comic I ever read had a little square that said Bob Kane on it. And now we got the inside story straight from the horse's mouth about who really created Batman and how it really happened. Oh, my God. I, you know, I, I get chills again. Can I, you tell our audience the story? Well, sure. Sure, I can. Um, Bob Kane was 17 years old. And Superman had come out. And he was drawing... Peter Pup and Ginger Snaps uh, for what would what ultimately was becoming DC Comics, and the editor said to him, "We're looking for another Superman. We need another superhero. See what you can come up with fast." And Bob came up with the idea of a character he originally called Birdman, then he changed the name to Batman, and he drew a picture of Batman, and it was a guy in a red costume. No gloves, no boots, with what we call a little domino mask like you would wear on Halloween, and had real bat wings coming out of his back. And he, Bob had met Bill Finger at a party and found out he was a writer. He was also a shoe salesman and had been writing some pulps and stuff. So they got together at Poe Park. Could you tell me what a pulp is? Yeah, a, a pulp magazine, also sometimes called dime novels, were the precursors to comic books. They sold for 10 cents, and it was a full novel with spot illustrations throughout. The writers were all paid approximately a quarter to a half a penny per word. And this is where some of our greatest science fiction was born in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. You go to see 2001 A Space Odyssey. That came out of a short story called The Sentinel by Arthur Clarke in a pulp magazine. Uh, you go to see The Day the Earth Stood Still. That came out of a pulp story by Harry Bates called Farewell to the Master. And it's where the precursors to superheroes were created. The Shadow. The Shadow, who was the primary influence in the creation of Batman. Doc Savage who was the primary influence on Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster in the creation of Superman. The Avenger. Don't even have to go into names and titles on that one. Um, and they all came out of the pulp industry. But the pulps were starting to die. And it, starting in the mid-30s, the comic book industry was formed. And the kids' dimes started to pour over into comic books from the dime novels. Eventually, the pulps went out by the 50s pretty much um, but it was a very very strong industry and it was an industry that just like movies was populated by Jewish printers publishers editors writers artists and the same thing was about to happen with the comic book industry why are most of the superheroes that are that we know today created by Jews many of whom were immigrants or first generation because just like movies and pulps Nobody in society wanted it. They looked down their nose at these new things. They thought they were as low rent as you could imagine. And also during this time, 
again, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. It was very hard for uh, Jewish artists to get work on Madison Avenue. It was very hard for Jewish writers to get work within the Fifth Avenue publishing industry in New York City. So they gravitated during the Depression and then World War II to wherever they could work and put food on the table and a roof over their family's head. And that was the movie industry, the pulp industry, and the comic book industry. So that's some backstory for this whole thing. So you're at the bar. So at the bar, and now I'm getting the story. So Bob brings the Batman to Bill Finger and says, you want to write this? I'm drawing it. And he says, well, what is it? And he says, well, it's, it's, it's a bat guy, and he's got these wings and he can fly. And he said, well, Superman already flies. Why do another supernatural kind of superhero? Why not take off the wings and just give him a cape, but scallop the cape so it looks like kind of like bat wings? He says, all right, that's a, that's a good idea. He said, and if he's Batman, instead of that little mask, why not give him a cowl with like a nose piece and bat ears coming off the top? He said, well, that makes sense. He says, bats are nocturnal. You colored his costume red. Why not make everything black and dark blue and dark gray? He said, well, that's a good idea. He says, now, he doesn't have gloves. You should give him gloves. You should give him boots. Eventually, Bill Finger said, why don't you add these jagged bat things and make them gauntlets instead of just little gloves? And he says, give him a belt. Give him a belt so he can pull things out of his belt when he, when he needs it. And finally, Bob's got the drawing of what we know today is Batman. And Bill says, well, one other thing. He should be mysterious. He says, you know in the Phantom comic strips how the Phantom's eyes are whited out in his mask? Do that on Batman. That'll give him the same mysterious look. And he says, so who is he? And, and why is he Batman? He goes, well, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. So Bill Finger goes, okay, um, let's call him Bruce Wayne. Um, how about if his, he, his parents are murdered in the street and he witnesses this whole thing and swears he's going to spend the rest of his life to get the guy who did this and get all the bad guys. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just want to thank my incredible partners, starting with Wondery. Check out their lineup of some of the greatest podcasts in the world at Wondery.com. And AquaTrue, the revolutionary miniaturized countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately it'll turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. Get $100 off when you go to industrystandard.com and type in the promo code Barry. Start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. And you'll save tons of money a year like I have and never buy another bottle of water again. Also, amazing documentary called I Killed JFK centering on the only living person in history who ever admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. Go to ikilledjfk.com, buy the film, and you also get the rare interviews with five of the last living JFK assassination experts, and I guarantee you it'll change the way you think of the world. The Air Doctor, the groundbreaking portable air purification system, which will change your home environment and overall life for the better. The Air Doctor instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating through your home. 
normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for you guys, for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. I got one of these systems, and I'm telling you, it's truly incredible. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And finally, Boku Superfood, the purest, most potent, and delicious superfood blends on the planet. Certified organic, kosher, and vegan, Boku Superfood is changing the game for thousands of people in 65 countries. And I'm so confident it'll change your life that I worked out an incredible deal with the company. Get a full week's worth of Boku Superfood for free. Just pay the minimal shipping. Go to tryboku.com and experience the difference of how it makes you look and feel. And you will understand why Boku is the number one family-owned superfood company in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy car all the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.